From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Lawsuits over election integrity and legislative decisions about voting machines have been ongoing stories since before the presidential elections in 2016. We get surges and retreats of headlines about both, but it is hard to track. While the Secretary of State has just announced which company it has chosen, that will change the way that you vote next year. Even as a federal judge is weighing a potential change in how you vote, this fall. GPB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler has been following this story from the jump and here to help sort out which updates to pay attention to. Good morning. Good morning. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced yesterday that Dominion Voting Systems will be was chosen rather to replace Georgia's outdated voting system. It's $106 million cost over 10 years. What do you get for $106 million these days? Well, first, $106 million is believed to be one of the largest, if not the largest, purchase of voting machines in the country. That's because it's replacing the entire voting system in Georgia. $106 million gets you uh, new e-poll books, which is how people check into the polls, new ballot marking devices, which is how you vote, the printers that print out your paper ballot, and the scanners that scan them, among other things. So you looked at procurement documents over all of this. Why did they not choose ESNS, the system that we've been using for some time in Georgia. Well, so ultimately, when it came down to the state procurement process, the final score was determined by the cost. That $106 million over the course of 10 years was $89 million for this next year, and it was much cheaper than the options from ESNS and another vendor, Smartmatic. Uh, Dominion also uh, seemed to be able to get the job done a little earlier. I looked down in some of the scores, and the reviewers, evaluators, uh, said that uh, Dominion scored a little bit higher on a question about uh, showing your plan for how you would roll out these machines to Georgia's 159 counties. So how much was budgeted, by the way? The state, according to HB 316, which was passed earlier this year by the legislature, the state was authorized to spend $150 million on voting machines. Final cost was around $106 million. So you could say they came in a little bit under budget, to be understated. How different is it than the current system? So the current system we use is what's known as a DRE, Direct Recording Electronic Device. It's a touchscreen, but the vote is cast and stored inside the machine. There's no piece of paper. So first, the new difference will be a piece of paper that will print out a QR code and the textual summary of the races you voted in and your selections. That QR code will then be scanned. Uh, you'll take your paper ballot, scan it into the system, and the scanner will read the QR code. It will take a picture of your ballot, basically, and then your paper ballot will go into this little locked box underneath. Now, QR code's like a barcode, correct? Correct. Will you be able to read out when you put that QR code into the machine what your ballot says? There will be text on there, you know, Governor Virginia Prescott. You will be able to read that in your selections on there. The QR code is what's used to actually scan and count your vote in the course of an election. But for recounts and audits, the state and the voting machine vendor says they will use the text summary when determining recounts and audits. Just to clarify, I won't be running this year. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. So this is not over budget, no apparent political patronage, which was part of the concern. ES&S had a long relationship, uh, so, so the accusations went with Governor Kemp. Paper ballot any opposition from Democrats or voting rights groups. It sounds like all of the boxes are checked. 
Well, having a paper ballot component in the election system does go a long way for a lot of people's concerns because these uh, touchscreen machines we use now, there's no paper, there's no really verifiable way to audit. But people still have concerns over ballot marking devices. The QR code we talked about, uh, one of the things that people say is, can you read a QR code or a barcode? Hmm. You cannot. So there's a concern about the votes being read and tabulated accurately. Uh, adding another step in the process, a computer, a touchscreen, you know, adding a step in the process concerns some people of, okay, I thought I pushed this button. Do I trust the machine to print out what I actually voted? That's another concern. Um, but then, you know, there's also concerns that uh, people say that ballot marking devices are more expensive than hand-marked paper ballots, which is what a current lawsuit is trying to seek for this fall. Well, we'll get to that in just one second, but I'm thinking 300-plus municipal elections coming up this fall. Did the Secretary of State's office run through the rollout of the new machines? In the award documents for Dominion, there's a uh, mock plan that they had to submit of how they would roll things out. First and foremost, about six counties will receive uh, these machines to test out in the fall elections. Don't know which six they are. It will depend on once the qualifying happens and there are counties with races where basically there's more than two people on the ballot because if it's uh, they want to test a competitive election. But after that, uh, they're planning to have the entire system in place by the March 24th, 2020 presidential preference primary. So that means training everyone, getting all the machines, getting everything set up. And then the Secretary of State's office says that they're going to be traveling a lot around the state to get voters to interact with the new system from check-in to the end and touch the machines and ask questions and, you know, basically... The next several months will be very busy for them trying to introduce this system to 7 million plus registered voters. Right. So that's a heavy lift. And that's part of a lawsuit that is now been going on for some time. Federal Judge Amy Totenberg deliberating over this suit. This was brought by voting rights advocates and individual voters. Now, last week, the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a report claiming that Russia, Russia targeted elections in all 50 states during the 2016 election. So this revs up concerns about accurate voting. Does that add a sense of, let's say, legitimacy to the ongoing suit? Well, so Virginia, during the hearing last week, that report was actually brought up. The report came out during the first day of the hearing. So in the second day, it was brought up as evidence. Uh, targeted is not the same as... Uh, you know, attacked or, you know, gained control of or things like that, which is something the state argued. But the plaintiff said, you know, the fact that this is targeted, the fact that all 50 states, these machines are vulnerable, it certainly adds to the heightened question that the judge is currently deliberating about the use of these current machines in the fall for most of those 300 elections. And so that will be the crux of what will be decided, not in January yet, although I'm sure there will be lawsuits filed to challenge these new devices that we'll have. But the the concerns about national security is something that Judge Totenberg has said that is in the front of her mind in deciding these cases. Well, with so much to be decided, especially about hand-marked ballots, paper ballots versus these QR codes, is she talking about when she would rule on demands for handmarked paper ballots? Well, uh, Judge Totenberg likes to review all of the facts, all of the documents. She called herself the fact queen. So I would anticipate at some point this week she would issue her ruling. 
the state uh, announcing a new voting machine vendor and it being a different one than the one that we have now, I'm not sure how that's going to play into her decision. But the biggest thing she told uh, the court and the audience and people that were there at the end of the hearing is that she has to weigh the time and the money and the infrastructure concerns that local election officials shared with the inherent risks of using these touchscreen DRE machines in November. So that's going to be the big battle in her mind as she has to rule on this important case. Stephen, you've been following this story for a long time. We've got a big picture here. The lawsuit going on in Georgia, the Senate Intelligence Report nationally, questions about voting machines since you since 2002 all undermine confidence in the electoral system. So where are we now? Well, the November 2020 elections are over a year from now, and in that time, the Secretary of State's office has a huge task ahead of it, trying to convince the people that didn't vote for Secretary Raffensperger, the people that advocated for handmarked paper ballots, the people who just, you know, are resistant to change. They've got an uphill battle ahead of them trying to convince Georgia voters that this new ballot marking device system is safe and secure and that their votes will count in the upcoming elections. So it's been interesting to watch. I know you put out a call for questions about Georgia's electoral system on social media. What are, what are people curious about? What are they asking you about? Well, before the announcement of the new vendor, people still have a lot of questions about barcodes and voting. You know, people can see, at least with the touchscreen, they can see their votes and then it disappears on a card. But now we're adding another piece of paper. We're adding another barcode and another layer between who you want to vote for and it going into the system. So the biggest thing that people want to know about and that I'll be exploring is how barcodes and voting work and if that's safe and to be trusted. Stephen Fowler, GPB Politics reporter, thank you so much. Thank you. Pretty much our in-house elections experts covered the selection of new voting machines and lawsuits challenging our current ones. You can read all about Dominion and ballot marking devices. He's got it covered on our website, gpbnews.org. symbolic of our current conflicts about gender that some people find catcalling flattering. For others, being whistled at or hooted at on the street feels like harassment or worse, frightening. Catcalls are legal in Georgia, as they are in most states, so some women have adapted strategies to avoid intimidation. Emily Rose Thorne looked into the issue in Macon. Claire Raveri remembers being catcalled at a bus stop when she was a freshman at Mercer University. An SUV full of men stopped at the light rolled down the windows, and started yelling. Just stuff about my body and how great I look and, you know, can I tap that? I really honestly just felt super scared. It's like, they have a car, what are they going to do? Like, they're going to come grab me? Lots of women have stories like hers. In fact, according to a 2016 California State University study, more than two-thirds of women have experienced catcalling. A smaller number of women in the study said that led to being inappropriately touched or even followed. College student Grace Hamilton grew up in Macon, where she says street harassment happens all the time. One night on her way home, she walked by a man sleeping outside of a church. And he wakes up, like, while I'm walking past. And he goes, hey, hey cutie, you got a lighter? Hamilton was worried that the harassment might go further. 
And honestly, like, I was kind of scared, so I called my mom and, like, woke her up. This is probably, like, midnight or later. And had her stay on the phone with me until I got inside my house. Protecting herself was her only option. Since catcalling is not illegal in most states, including Georgia, victims are mostly on their own. That's why Emily May co-founded Hollaback, an anti-street harassment advocacy group. She says young women, LGBTQ people, and people of color are more likely to experience street harassment. Very, very common. Um, we see anxiety. We see uh, depression occurring. We'll see people start to make different decisions, such as taking different routes to school or to work, um, or you know, showing up to school or work, but being distracted by the harassment that they faced on the way there. Claire Avery, who was harassed at the bus stop, says she had to make some of those choices to feel safe in Macon. I'm really careful about things now. I never walk alone. Um, and I try not to walk far distances in Macon just to avoid those situations. Um, and I usually stay in areas that I'm comfortable in and I you know, know are safe. But I also feel like even then, I'm always worried about it happening because you never know. Riveri says she's become desensitized to catcalling. She usually just ignores harassers. But, you know, if you're in a group of girls and um, it's one guy and you feel really safe about it, like, talk back because they're not expecting it. React to what they're saying. Maybe ask them a question. Try to, you know, throw them off a little bit. Hollaback director Emily May doesn't advocate for making catcalling illegal. Instead, she says the best way to combat it is to change the culture that permits it. You don't flirt at somebody. You flirt with somebody. Until the harassers get that message and change the culture, the harassed will just have to keep fighting it. For GPB News, I'm Emily Rose Thorne in Macon. Coming up before it was home to GSU football or even the Atlanta Braves, it was one of the city's oldest African-American communities. I'm Virginia Prescott. Explore the history of Atlanta's Summerhill neighborhood when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you've ever taken the 75-85 connector through Atlanta, you've driven through the neighborhood of Summerhill. After the Civil War, Summerhill was one of Atlanta's first black neighborhoods seated just south of downtown. Over the decades, the area has seen transformation after transformation, from being sliced up by expressways to housing two major stadiums at once all while local businesses dealt with the aftermath. And it's not done yet, with the Braves moving to the suburbs and Georgia State University moving into the once Turner Field, the Summerhill neighborhood seems to be headed for one more revival. With this new wave of development, historians from GSU wanted to document the stories of the neighborhood in digital form. They created Streetscape Palimpsest, a history of Georgia Avenue. Dr. Marnie Davis is one of those historians, and she's joining me in the studio. Marnie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And let's start at the beginning. The Summer Hill that we know today really started as two distinct neighborhoods. What did these neighborhoods look like then, right after the Civil War? Well, after the Civil War, the initial settlement of African Americans who moved down south of downtown to, uh, it was one of several neighborhoods in the city that freed slaves and uh, free blacks sought to create their own institutions and their own residential enclaves. Um, and that happened to the part of Summerhill that we know now to the east of what is now Hank Aaron was then known as Capitol Avenue. Mm -hmm. To the west of Capitol Avenue was... A 
two major thoroughfares that were being built from downtown to the south of the city, um, Washington Street and Capitol Avenue, were both streets where there were a lot of businesses. Uh, Washington Street and even Prior Street had a lot of fancy homes and mansions. The governor's mansion was even there for a little while, but briefly. And then these neighborhoods became residential enclaves, first for uh, white Atlantans, and then they became uh, sites of settlement for immigrants, first for German Jews, Central European Jews, and then for Eastern European Jews from Russia and Poland, um, and also Greeks and uh, some Syrians as well. So So sounds like a very diverse neighborhood, certainly. Yes, certainly. They were, I mean, to say diverse sounds... Okay, diverse but segregated, is that the way to put it? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, uh, the lead up to Jim Crow and then deep in the, you know, Jim Crow Atlanta. And so these neighborhoods were sort of a, a, a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood living really cheek by jowl right next to each other. And there was some porousness across Capitol Avenue where there were some white people who were living in... Summerhill, what was then known as Summerhill, and African-American, even a homeowner enclaves in what was in the website I call the South Side. But you can actually read about it in newspapers at the time. It's sometimes called, uh, you know, the Washington Street neighborhood or Capitol Avenue. When I talked to people who grew up in that neighborhood back in the 1940s and 50s, sometimes they just called it the Jewish neighborhood, um, Jewish Atlanta. And they and sometimes there were African-Americans living in that part of town, too. But this was not, you know, sort of like a multicultural neighborhood as we would know it today. The idea of diversity as we, um, you know, honor it and are excited about it just simply didn't exist in Atlanta Well, at the in time. fact, you say that sort of by design. At one point, you say in your work that the streetcars reveal how inequality was built into the streets themselves. How did that reveal itself? Well, if you look at a streetcar map from the 1920s, uh, you'll see that uh, in the streets south of downtown, there are streetcar lines that are going down Prior Street, Washington Street, uh, Capitol Avenue, and then it skips over that neighborhood that had already been established for African Americans, and it goes uh, to Hill Street. Uh, and so you can see how, I mean, some you know, it's hard to tell if you're looking at old uh, streetcar maps, because some you don't know if the the settlement of people sort of developed around the streetcars that had been Right, because they want they want. They want access to, to transportation, to the infrastructure, or if the streetcars are being built around neighborhoods. But for this one, you really can see that they've just kind of left a gaping hole in, in uh, around uh, an island of black settlement, which was Summerhill at the time. I'm going to get to this idea of porousness, because there was one establishment that served both black and white audiences, certainly not integrated, but the Empire Movie Theater. What role did that play in the community? Well, the Empire Movie Theater, it's really amazing to think of. If you are standing in front of what is now GSU Stadium, and you look at, uh, you find Gate 8, that's where it was standing at that exact location. And it was it was built in the early 1920s, uh, was a, uh, you know, just, I think it was kind of a, a bit of a second run movie theater. And there were these tiny movie theaters all over the city that were built by, you know, private people. They weren't necessarily attached to big movie houses. And it was a place where People from the South Side and Summerhill and all the surrounding neighborhoods could go and see movies for, you know, five cents, ten cents. But 
there were, I mean, there were many movie theaters in the city where it was for whites only uh, or were known as for blacks only. But this was a movie theater where African-Americans and whites could attend buy tickets, but it was also segregated, much like the Fox Theater. So the African-Americans had to take a separate entrance on the side. They were only allowed to sit at the top of the, you know, in the, in the balcony. Uh, and the, the orchestra was limited for uh, white ticket buyers only. Okay, so some mixing, but still segregated. Still very segregated. So by the 40s and 50s, Georgia Avenue had become a center of business, and you interviewed Walter Banks, one of the residents who lived there at the time. Let's hear just a clip from him. Where'd your parents go grocery shopping in the neighborhood? On George Avenue. George Avenue was like a little small downtown. Everything you needed almost was on George Avenue. Uh, Austin Supermarket, that was a big one. It, it ran from the Empire all the way up to Capitol Avenue. And I remember they used to, you, on your receipt, you sign your name and put it in a, in a big box. And they used to draw for a car. And that was the closest I remember integration when they used to pull for that car. So everybody, they blocked the street, everybody was standing in the street. So that was about the closest I can remember if it was so-called integration. That Summerhill resident Walter Banks on the grocery store lottery at Austin's Mm -hmm. on Georgia Avenue in the 1950s. So what are you hearing in these stories that you collected? Not just his, but all of them. I hear a little center of downtown. There were some rules, but there were some places where those rules were cast aside. I, well, it seems like uh, Georgia Avenue, which is where I really focused a lot of my research, uh, was um, a, really a, a center for so many neighborhoods nearby, not just Summer Hill and the Southside neighborhood, but also, you know, people that you speak to who grew up in People's Town, uh, Grant Park, that both black and white, that they all knew about and shopped at the stores around Georgia Avenue. And these were spaces where people, you know, interacted across racial boundaries, but where it seems like it's really clear that those racial boundaries were still very strictly enforced. Uh, And one of the uh, stories that I read was uh, a civil rights activist named uh, Ruby Doris Robinson, who had grown up in Summerhill. And she said that she uh, went to a an ice cream store where she had seen white customers whose the person who was uh, scooping the ice cream was handling the cone with a sanitary piece of paper. And then when she got up to the counter, uh, the the person scooping ice cream seemed to be a little bit miffed about having to serve an African-American and just grabbed the cone. And Ruby Dora said, no, you will treat my money with the same respect that you treat the money of white customers. Um, and you'll, you'll treat my cone with a piece of paper as well. And it seems like such a small thing. But those small, uh, it's, it makes clear how devastating and crushing those small insults can be if you're experiencing them over and over again in every store that you go into, uh, on the streets, uh, when you have to walk farther from your home in order to take the streetcar, or if and another thing about Summerhill in terms of infrastructure is that the roads of Summerhill remained, many of the, of the streets the residential streets remained unpaved well into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's a space of where people who are both black and white are interacting with one another. And that was true of so much of Atlanta anyway. But it also, the, the personal stories make clear how those interactions impacted their way of thinking about politics and their life in the city.
Marnie Davis is with me. She's an historian and professor from Georgia State University, and her project, Streetscape Palimpsest, A History of Georgia Avenue, is a digital documentation of the tumultuous history of the Summerhill neighborhood. You're talking about, you know, those microaggressions, what we would now call microaggressions, those little actions that communicate difference. But there were some big, major projects going on at the time for the neighborhood in the late 1950s, the expressways. How was Summerhill impacted by what would be become the intersection of the connector and I-20. Really, it can't be understated. And it's worth pointing out that there had been a previous major project that had impacted the neighborhood too, which was the building of Capitol Homes, which was a public housing project that was um, constructed, I think it opened in 1940. And this is at the very north end, what would have then been considered the north end of Summerhill, and is now sort of cut off from Summerhill, because, a large part because of 20, because of uh, Interstate 20. Uh, but uh, that neighborhood had been a majority African-American neighborhood, and it all got cleared to create white-only public housing. And so this was sort of the first incident of uh, displ- residential displacement for the purposes of, uh, I guess, you know, social engineering and, and recreation of the city's infrastructure. But then in uh, the 1950s, well, it started even starting in the 1940s, the city is beginning to think about how they are going to build highway infrastructure in order to connect the downtown with the suburbs of the city, which are growing by leaps and bounds at the time, and also with other cities in the area. And so they are building a highway and they decide that it's going to go through um, not Summerhill at this point, but it's going to go through the South Side neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that's really where, that's what gets cleared, is uh, everything from, I guess you can, I think it's probably like Central Avenue uh, through Washington Street, all of that is gone now. That's all a highway. And at the, around the same time, they decided that they were going to connect uh, the east, they were going to make this section, this place, um, the east-west, where the east-west connect, east-west highway connects with the, the, the north-south highway. Mm-hmm. And so they build the interchange, which is at that time, the largest highway interchange in the southeast. And it goes right in the north end of what had been the south side neighborhood. And if you look, it's amazing, if you look at old maps of Atlanta, and you look at that particular place, you'll see three synagogues, uh, a, a high school, a convent, <laughs> uh, so many institutions, and really, in a lot of ways, what was the heart of the institutional part of Jewish Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, and it they it just got torn down. Uh, those institutions were able to move to the north side of the city and buy new real estate and or recreate their communities in the northern uh, suburbs, uh, but it's all gone. So it's really hard to think about how what the city looked like if you go to other cities and uh, you can go to something that looks kind of like the old neighborhood. And you can get a sense of even if the people have changed, the demography has changed, that the the buildings are the same. And here there's nothing like that. And so it's really hard to sort of employ historical imagination. Imagine what did people, how did people live in this neighborhood? Because it's not a neighborhood anymore. It's and in that flattened. area, it's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. And so how this affected Summerhill was that it cut off those streets from the neighborhoods to the west, 
So, there, I mean, you can't it, go it changed, for... You, the walking traffic you can't changes. Get, it was the a grid. It yeah. was an urban grid, and it was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition... When all of the homes and the residences and the, the residents who had been living in that neighborhood, when they left, these were the customers that Georgia Avenue served. I mean, Georgia Avenue, though it was a pretty robust and bustling shopping district, it really relied on local patronage. And when the local patrons are gone, the shops start to close and those who can end up moving to you know other suburbs uh, and those who can't just shut down. And so... Georgia Avenue, as Georgia Avenue begins to wither, that neighborhood is no longer served by, you know, eight grocery stores that had been there. It goes down to four. And then by 1970, it's like one. Yeah, isolated by economically and by traffic. But yes. Well, so and then it's hard to talk about Summerhill without discussing the influence of Stadia. Um, <laughs> but the first stadium was there wasn't Turner Field. It was Cheney Stadium. So so first, how did Summerhill get selected for this kind of development? Well, Cheney Stadium was built uh, as a, a, a sports facility to serve the high schools, the white high schools of uh, in the south side of the city. And one of those was Hoke Smith High School, which is which no longer exists, and it's on around the same plot of land as uh, uh, MLK Junior High School is now on Hill Street. Um, but uh, Hooksmith High School was one of several that uh, several high schools that uh, served uh, white students um, to the south of Ponce, and so that area was. It had already been some part of it was a park. Part of it was actually residential. Uh, but it was decided that this would be a good place for uh, the the, um, the the city to build or the, the Atlanta uh, public school system uh, to build a stadium. And the African-Americans who lived in that neighborhood, the leadership actually went to uh, the Atlanta public schools and said, this is this might be a problem, not only because we've been told that there would be a stadium built for us here. This was supposed to be for our stu- our kids, our students, but also the idea. This is you know in nineteen in the nineteen fifties of a bunch of uh, white students sort of uh, trekking in and out of Summerhill on a regular basis for sports events. There was some concern that this might lead to unrest, violence. Um, I never saw any evidence. I mean, I you know looked in the newspapers. I never saw any evidence of any anything that happened there. But that was really the first of the stadium that had been imposed, stadia that had been imposed on uh, Summerhill, sort of without their consent or pre knowledge. Marnie Davis, stay with us. We're going to take a short break. She's a historian and professor from GSU, and we're learning about the history of Georgia Avenue. This is something that she and her colleagues have been documenting. This is the Summerhill neighborhood in Atlanta, but indicative of so many neighborhoods, I think, across the South that had once er, once thriving urban centers and now no longer. It's an American story. It is an American story. Let's hang on. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott.
We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, and my guest, Marnie Davison, has been talking about the history of Summerhill. That's an Atlanta neighborhood that has dealt with everything from booming business to blights and riots, a story that has been going on across American cities, especially since the age of urban renewal. And we're looking what the current upswing means in terms of the conversation about gentrification. We talked a little bit about stadia, or <laughs> that's the plural, mm-hmm. <laughs> of stadia moving into this neighborhood. So Cheney Stadium was not the only one that was developed there. What happened next to this neighborhood? Well, uh, after uh, the highways are uh, beginning to be conceived and then under construction and the land is being cleared, uh the city then undertakes a project of urban renewal. Uh, and the goal for urban renewal, um, one of them is uh, slum clearance is the term that they use to uh, find uh, areas of the city that are sites of concentrated poverty and dilapidated infrastructure, tear it down and replace it with new infrastructure and new buildings. Um, and the other is to protect uh, downtown area uh, from blight. Mm-hmm. Now, the goal originally had been for uh, the city to build, again, white public housing, whites-only public housing in that area. But African-American leaders went to the city and said, this is preposterous and unfair, because um, it is primarily African-Americans at this point who are being cleared from this land, being displaced, and uh, there is not sufficient housing being rebuilt for them. So if you're going to build public housing, it should be public housing for African-Americans. But uh, the um, city aldermen are unwilling to build black-only public housing so close to downtown. So what are we going to do with the land? And that's when Ivan Allen Jr., uh, recently mayor, comes in and says, well, we've been looking for a baseball team and a place to promise a, a major league baseball team. Here's our spot. And so the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium gets built there in 1965, and the Braves play their first season there in 1966. Well, with the stadium comes demands for parking, as we know, which was in short supply here. Here's a clip from one of your interviews. This is Summerhill resident Joseph Stalls on how he and his neighbors used it to their advantage. We actually started one of the first gypsy parking lot in Summerhill. Uh, on certain games, like when uh, the Dodgers came to town, when uh then the master pitched against Sandy Colfax. Oh, it's a sellout, and, and, and cars are everywhere. And uh, the fans would uh, pay you, at the time, we used to charge maybe $2, $3, you know, to come and, and uh, the cars would park in your driveway. My dad sawed our porch in half so the cars could come behind our house. And we can get uh, 10 to 15 cars behind our house. So at, at, at um, 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, we we make fifteen, twenty dollars and twenty five dollars. That was big money back in the in the sixties and seventies. Okay, uh, Summerhill resident Joseph Stalls on um, what they call gypsy parking lots. Right. I'm going to use his term. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and. It's that was really interesting to me to be reminded of the sort of multiple perspectives on something like I mean it's when you're coming from the pers- from the position of uh, you know the old infrastructure should be rebuilt and that the stadium uh, was nothing but a, a scourge upon the neighborhood. It's easy to forget that at the ground level there are people who are like, hey, 
this is actually an opportunity for us. I talked to a lot of people whose family members had started businesses that served the stadium uh, or who had taken real pride in sitting in their porch and hearing uh, what was going on in the stadium, whether it was a music event or a baseball game. Uh, and so I think that it's a helpful reminder that our interpretations require, our historical interpretations always require hearing from as many different voices as possible because it adds nuance and it reminds us that um, life is complicated. Yeah, and there's, you know, entrepreneurialism there. There's Absolutely. opportunity for people who are living there and, and, and doing making do with what they've got and even using it to their advantage. But it's not all a happy story. The, the neighborhood was also associated in the 1970s when the business area was taking a sharp downturn. What was happening at this turning point in the neighborhood at the time? Well, by 1970, the white population, and even I, I think it's fair to say the middle class population in a lot of ways, because there, you know, uh, there was a significant black middle class living in Summerhill up through the 1940s and 50s. Um, but as the neighborhood goes into decline because of the highways and because of the stadium and lots of other reasons, the middle class uh, leaves the neighborhood because they are able to access they better housing have. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so the Summerhill neighborhood becomes a site of uh, concentrated poverty in a way that it really hadn't been previously. Um, it becomes uh, a, a not just con but concentrated racialized poverty. It is uh, poor black residents who are in the neighborhood and they find themselves uh, in conflict a lot of times with the people who are now the entrepreneurs uh, along Georgia Avenue. And in uh, on, on my website, I tell a story of one site of conflict, which was uh, Azar's package store. Uh, Azar, the, his name was Donald Azar, and he had owned liquor stores and owned real estate around the neighborhood, really all around the city. But he started a liquor store on the corner of Georgia Avenue and Fraser Street uh, in the mid-60s or so. And it seemed like the relationship between Azar and the neighborhood had been pretty contentious from early on. Uh, but that really bubbled up into something uh, that turned violent. In 1970, uh, Azar was accused of assaulting um, uh, an African-American employee who worked in his store. And so there was a series of protests uh, against him and uh, against uh, the presence of liquor stores. I mean, at, by this point, there are, I think, as many uh, liquor stores on Georgia Avenue as there were places where you could buy fresh groceries. Hmm. And uh, people who lived in the neighborhood recognized that they were being ill-served uh, by the commerce and they wanted it to change. And so there was an effort made to um, convince Azar to leave the neighborhood. He doesn't. Uh, and then in August of that year, a boy from the neighborhood, a 15-year-old boy uh, named Andre Moore, is shot and killed by police. And that uh, was, you know, not the first incident of of uh, police brutality in the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, uh, the um, riot, sometimes referred to as a riot, sometimes referred to as a rebellion in Summerhill in 1966, had uh, that had also been in response to the neighborhood sense that the police were uh, ill-serving uh, the black community in, in the neighborhood. Uh, and so the in, after the shooting of Andre Moore, the neighborhood is just enraged and frustrated neighborhood leaders go to the mayor and basically plead with him to shut down the liquor store to take into account the resources that the neighborhood needs and have been made unavailable to them. And the city government 
saying, okay, we'll change it, but nothing really does. Yeah. And at that time, you know, there were riots, there were bullets in puncturing Azar's walls, firebombs thrown in through the plate glass windows there. Another, uh, uh, several other businesses there were torched as well. As you said, you know, 80s, 90s, Olympic fever, everything changes there, or that was the promise. That was the promise. Right. And now then the Braves, of course, headed to the suburbs. Georgia State moved into the area. And now we're seeing, it's near my neighborhood. I live in Grant Park, and I go through there. Now there's a little cafe. There's a great soft serve place. There are all these, the buildings have been sort of spiffed up. So that, of course, is, you know, gentrification, a part of a part of a national conversation and certainly a local conversation in places like Atlanta about affordable housing and displacing residents. What are we seeing now in Summerhill and what kind of, I guess, lessons of the past can we draw? Well, it's interesting to think about both uh, the ways in which, uh oh, here's history potentially repeating itself, but also things are really different now because up and from the mid 20th century up until maybe 20 years ago it was about flight people who had the resources left the neighborhood but gentrification something's different here because now people with resources are coming to the neighborhood and so the question isn't about like what infrastructure is going to be made available to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it, but what's going to happen to people who find that their taxes go up or their rent goes up because their real estate values are really changing um, and uh, that might potentially be displaced. Doing this project has made me think about what Georgia Avenue was like in the past and the fact that it had all these different kinds of grocery stores and butchers and bakers, and uh, they could really serve, all of these stores could really serve a neighborhood that was um, culturally and economically diverse. And a neighborhood really needs that in order to thrive. And so I am certainly delighted that there is something there and something lovely where there had been nothing. But um, how is the commerce that is developing along Georgia Avenue and really around Summerhill and lots of other places now, um, how is that going to serve the neighborhood more broadly? Is right. it going to... So it may not be liquor stores or package stores, but now it's, you know, a bakery with, right. with $5 pastries. Exactly. And so how will these stores help say, a, a, a longtime neighborhood resident who is aging in place on a fixed income. Is this the kind of commerce that's going to be able to help that person live on a day-to-day basis? They could actually, you know, walk to get groceries or a very short drive to get groceries. Uh, and uh, how, how to incentivize that kind of uh, diverse commerce uh, is a question that I I think that we are all struggling to answer. As a historian, I'm certainly in no position. I'm not a policy expert, but it seems really clear that even people who think about policy struggle to figure out how to um, develop the kinds of programs that will uh, make it possible for a neighborhood to grow and thrive and change because neighborhoods change. That's a fact of urban life. Uh, But also so that it doesn't change so much that the people who have lived in that neighborhood, maybe for decades and really relied on it as a place where they their families are and they could be comfortable, um, that they don't have to, they don't get pushed out. I hope that what happens in Summerhill makes it possible for both the old and the new to coexist. 
One final question here. You use the term palimpsest, which is a beautiful word, very poetic, but a lot of people might not know what it means. Why choose it for the project? It, it's a bit of an SAT word. It's true. <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a, a, well, what a palimpsest is, is a document, usually not necessarily a piece of paper, but back thousands of years ago when people would write on things like parchment or lambskin. The stuff to write on was actually kind of rare. So when you would reuse whatever it is that you're using to write on by erasing or scraping off what had been there previously and writing over it. And now uh, historians who have access to these documents, to these primary sources, they are able to, you know, read the writing that's on the top level, but also see what's underneath by what's been carved out previously. And sometimes it's, you know, multiple layers of document and use and user. And it is a beautiful metaphor for cities, uh, because especially in older neighborhoods and Georgia Avenue in this area is a perfect example of the, you know, you can see the old buildings and the old infrastructure, but it's been used in lots of different ways. And if you can read below the surface, you get a much richer understanding of the life of the street and of the neighborhoods it went through, and I think of Atlanta in general. Reading Below the Surface with Dr. Marnie Davis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Georgia State History Professor, and also she's been working on the research project Streetscape Palimpsest, a history of Georgia Avenue. You can find out more about it at gpbnews.org. Savannah's first African Baptist church calls itself the oldest black church in North America. In past centuries, it was a place where escaped slaves found refuge. In past decades, it was where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his first speech. Ryan McFadden visited the church and brought back this audio postcard. Uh, my name is Thurman N. Tillman, and I'm pastor at First African Baptist Church of Franklin Square, Savannah, Georgia. First African Baptist Church is the oldest black church in North America. It's the oldest black church because uh, in 1773, George Lyle, who was a slave, was granted permission to preach up and down the Savannah River. In December of 1777, he constituted the church here in Savannah. When we talk about civil rights, uh, we talk a lot, of course, about Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, well, Dr. Ralph Mark Gilbert, uh, who was the 13th pastor of First African Baptist Church, was a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. Gilbert was ahead of his time, though, when it comes to civil rights, because Dr. Gilbert was able to get the first nine black police officers hired in Savannah. He was very instrumental all through the civil rights movement, making sure that the NAACP was formed. He actually helped form or start the state NAACP, and reactivated the Savannah branch of the NAACP, and he served as president of, of that organization.
when I first came as pastor, probably for the first five years, I, the history really didn't phase me. I didn't think a lot about the history. I can almost remember when the history did hit me. One day when I was in the sanctuary and thinking about the building that we worship in now that was built in 1859 by members of the congregation who were mostly enslaved, it made me remember that they used money that they could have used to actually purchase their freedom or the freedom of their families and chose to build a sanctuary to God. I really do believe that come 1863, around the same period they were finishing this building and beginning worshiping it, Abraham Lincoln signs an Emancipation Proclamation that not only frees them, but frees whoever enslaved states throughout this, this nation. Our thanks to Ryan McFadden for that audio postcard. And before we go today, I'm looking for your help. I'm going to be joining Pajama Storytime this Thursday, August 1st. So I'll be reading picture books at Atlanta Fulton Public Library in East Point on Thursday evening. What are some of your favorite picture books for kids? Let us know on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Allison Krausman. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley is Senior Producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought from GBB. GBB.